where in the story of Nehemiah, and um, we find Jerusalem at a point where it has a problem. There are no people in it. Verse, chapter 7, verse 4 tells us that the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. I want to set a bit of a scene for you just at the moment. I want you to imagine Nehemiah with his clipboard in his hand. Did you, for those of you that were in for the, for the slideshow that Paul did of Jerusalem, just try and imagine, if you weren't in for the slideshow, just try and imagine in your mind's eye the city of Jerusalem and Nehemiah stood outside with his clipboard and looking over the plains of Judah and seeing the settled people full, looking out, looking across the land to see the different villages and the different cities full, and then looking back at Jerusalem, empty. It's an odd thing, an empty city, isn't it? It's an eerie thing when you see an empty city. I looked on the internet and I found this city called Kangbashi. Nod your heads if you've heard of Kangbashi. Nobody's heard of Kangbashi. That's great. It's because nobody, Paul's heard of it. Brilliant. Nobody lives there. It was a city built for a million people in northern China. Google it, not right now, please stay listening with me, but Google it later. And it's it's just so eerie. And it sends out such a confusing message. Probably the nearest thing we've got to anything like that is Clarence Dock in Leeds. If you've been to Clarence Dock in Leeds, nod your head. That might be a bit harsh on Clarence Dock. I really like it, and aesthetically... It's beautiful, and if you were to ask me to be creative and design a space that will look like a cultural hub, it would be something like Clarence Dock, and yet, me and and the kids were there the other week, there's nobody there, and there's a few restaurants, and there's a few people occupying the plush, beautiful apartments, But but what you're thinking is, I'm not sure what this tells me about Leeds. I don't really feel like I've learned anything about Leeds, and that that was the situation that Nehemiah has as he looks across the plains of Judah and looks back at the city of Jerusalem and sees an empty city. What kind of message does an empty city send about a holy God? So what he had to do was get volunteers and recruits. So the people were willing to rebuild the city. They didn't want to live in it. I'm going to use a Yorkshire word just now to explain this. They were settled. Do you use that word, settled? I'm just, my mum comes around to see us and she says, I'm just Settled, and what she means is I'm really comfortable. I'm settled. The telly's on, I've got a cup of tea in my hand, and I'm settled. And these people were settled in the plain of Judah. They were farming people surrounded by farms. They'd established their families, and, their, and they were living comfortably in the land around them. They were settled people. And you've got this picture that I want us to keep on thinking about as we go through the story of a settled people outside the city contrasted with an empty city that God was trying to build up. The problem with an empty city, it was that Jerusalem was supposed to be a light on a hill, to be seen by the world as a witness to God, evidence of his ways, evidence of his grace, evidence of his power, evidence of his forgiveness. And what kind of message Nehemiah stood clipboard in hand looking out at the full plains of Judah. What kind of message does an empty city send out? We've been skipping through the lists. And Sarah did a great job there in her best Scottish accent of reading through the names. And me and Paul purposefully avoid at any point trying to read out some of those names because they're so tricky. But 
And we do that, don't we? We we skip the lists. If you've got a quiet time at home, if you're flicking through your Bible, if you've got 10 minutes and your 10 minutes happens to be the genealogy of Hekaziah, or for, yeah, that's not even a name, but if that's, if that's your 10 minute, if that's your ten, and I'm sorry about that, and if that's your 10 minute reading, then you're just going to say, I'm sure that God doesn't want me to spend the 10 minutes of my day reading through this genealogy. We have a slightly different relationship with history and genealogies and lists than the Jewish people did and do. There's no word in the Jewish lexicon, in the Jewish dictionary, ancient Jewish dictionary for history, doesn't exist. And there's a Jewish rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, who says, we can understand, they don't say the word history, it's rather they use the concept of being drawn into the memory. So we have history and they have this concept of being drawn into the memory. So when they read through this long list of genealogies that we look at and are confused by, and get bored with very quickly. They don't have that same relationship because that's their family. And they flick back through their family. And it does another thing as well. It connects them back with God. They flick back through their family. And it's important, I think, in the text of lists, we've not read them out, but it's, it associates these people with the tribes of Judah, with the tribes of Benjamin, with the priests, and with the Levites. And what it's saying is we connect ourselves with God. The Jewish people love to see themselves in light of the bigger picture. And think about this. We've just had the exile. All the stuff that would make you Jewish has been washed away, lost They've been a hundred years or so out of Jerusalem. They're wanting to reclaim the identity with God. So when we keep reading through the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, and it's got endless lists, and 2,000 years later we think, why is it full of lists? It's full of lists because these people are desperate to identify themselves back with God. And this is the way that they do it. This is the way that they do it. And they look back into the memory of their people, and they take security And they say, look, we're still the same bunch of people. There's been a blip. We've been in exile, but we're still the same crowd. It's still us. We're still under the same promises that God gave Abraham. And they connect their way back. They put their names on the list to see themselves in light of the bigger picture. We do that too, don't we? Whenever we go on holiday, we bump into a... Maybe maybe we don't all do it. Maybe you got to 30 and you see a memorial for for World War II and World War I and you stop... And you look at the list, and it does a couple of things, I think. It, it, it encourages us to remember the dead and honor the dead. That's its primary function. But what it does beyond that is connect that town with a bigger story. You read through the list of names, and it connects that town and towns all over Great Britain back to World War I, back to World War II. And then what do we do, or what do I do? Maybe you don't do this. You get to the list of names, and you think, I wonder if there's a Gibson in Plymouth who fought in World War II. And what we endeavor to do is look to see our place in the bigger story. And that's exactly what's going on with these lists. The people of Israel are making lists and they're saying, look, this is us in the bigger story. We are still connected back to the God who promised Abraham all this land. And they're making that point very clearly. I think it's a really interesting concept, isn't it? It's a human attribute, a human quality that we look to see ourselves in light of the bigger picture. 
we look to do something that's so dramatic that will get us on the list. So we try and climb higher, run faster, dig deeper, be more funny, be more evil, be more whatever it is to make ourselves known on the list. And also, we try and make sense of the big picture. So we've got guys and girls drinking copious amounts of coffee in lecture rooms, looking at long equations on walls, trying to make sense of this world, trying to understand their place in the bigger picture. Solomon summed it up like this in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. Just after the passage about time and understanding time and seasons and moments, he says, He has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He has set this idea of the expanse of time in our minds, but we just can't blooming see that God is behind it and not something else. And these people stand with good intentions in lecture theaters and look at long equations and try and make sense of the world. And I want to scream at them because part of me knows that when they get to the end of this equation, there is another equation waiting for them. There is endless amounts of equations waiting for them unless the answer that they come to is that God is the way that we can make sense of this world. Solomon said another thing at the end of his book, his brilliant book, Ecclesiastes. He says, Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study, where is the body? Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Our restless endeavor to understand ourselves in light of the big picture, and I was desperate to find a better phrase than this, alludes to the fact that there's a God-shaped hole in our heart, in our minds, and in our bodies. There must be a more trendy phrase than a God-shaped hole. It's been roped out by preachers over the years, but that is the phrase that you're going to get. It's the only way that we can make sense of this bigger picture. And if I were to summon up enough courage to walk into one of these rooms full of these clever guys scratching their heads, I would say that the only way you're going to make sense of this world is by connecting yourselves back with God, is if one of these equations ends up being about God. What does it say about us, this desire to understand our place in the bigger picture? It's just a desire, as Solomon says, something placed in our hearts, placed in our spirits at creation to understand the bigger picture. And unless we find a way to get our name And talk to us about this afterwards if this is something that's bothering you, if you're restless. Unless we can get our name on one of these lists, then we're never going to find peace. We're always going to be looking for the next thing. So Jerusalem has a problem. Back to the problem of Jerusalem. We've done with the lists now. No more lists talk. And it's such an unlikely problem. Given the, and this is an overused word in, in these days, isn't it? Given the journey that these people have been on, given the 52 days of manic building that these people have been on, for this city to remain empty just seems bonkers, doesn't it? Why would you spend 52 days manically building a city, facing great opposition and taunting to live down the road in your tent? Why would you do that? Why bother? In the lists, there are a bunch of occupations identified. And we're going to come to those in a minute. Functions. God's city needed to function. And there are going to be people there, Levites, priests, 
people serving in the temple, people singing, people watching over the gate functions. That's going to be identified. But there are also people in verse 4 of chapter 11, I don't know if that's going to be on the screen, it doesn't have to be, who just lived there. Nehemiah looked out over the plains of Judah and he looked back at God's city, empty, and he said, we need people just to live there. We need to, to make the big picture function. We need people to need forgiveness, to be forgiven. We need people to live in their houses. We need bums on seats in the bigger picture. That is what we need. We need people just to be there. And just for the team at the back, just being there is the first point we want to make. They needed people just to be there. I used to be a half-decent footballer. Half-decent. But it used to occupy my every, every working moment. I used to love the football. And I used to live for the football in a, in a few respects. And it would be all I talked about. And I, it was important to me, and I was important to it. They needed me to take people to the game. I would talk with Dan, who I ran the football, Dan ran the football team, who I helped from the football team, and we talk about team tactics and all this boring stuff that if you don't like football, you'll think, what on earth is the point of that? It kind of consumed me. And when I turned up on a Saturday morning, I was kind of essential. Now, I play football on a Monday night. I'm 37, and I look like I've turned into a dad, and it shows with my apparel. And it's unavoidable. No matter how hard I try to get the cool gear, I turn up and people see dad, old dad who's not kicked a football in a, in a while. And I put my £3.50 in the tub at the back and I stand and I take my place as part of the team and I just make the numbers up. And yet, if it wasn't for me and probably five or six, and I don't want to embarrass some guys like me who just rock up, who just put the £3.50 in, who just turn up and live there, then the big game, the Monday night football, could not happen. What Nehemiah needed was people just to put their hands up and say, I'll live there, I'll leave this life that I've settled with, and I'll come and I'll just be there. Don't ever underestimate your physical presence at church. Don't ever undervalue just turning up. Don't ever undervalue your daily Christian existence. I've been really blessed to do all sorts of different things and end up stood at the front lots of times. But the most powerful stuff that I've done, and I mean this quite genuinely, has often been in the everyday, just turning up, just being a Christian. That's been the strength of my testimony. And that's what Jerusalem needed. People to put their hands up and say, okay, we'll leave and we'll come and just be there. Strikes me, Nehemiah and Ezra, the more I read about them, the more inspired I am by them, the more I think these two guys are incredible. And yet without the people, what would be the legacy of the city of Jerusalem? Without people putting their hands up and saying, okay, I'll go and live there. I'll join this team. I'll just turn up every week. Ordinary Jews. No, they weren't ordinary Jews. They were essential attenders. Don't ever underestimate the value of your physical presence at church. This decision to move into the city, though, was easier for some than for others. Do you remember earlier on I talked about this idea of getting settled? There's a dictionary definition for getting settled. Here it is. It's a Yorkshire dictionary definition, and it's heavily edited by me. The process of finding oneself entering a period of leisure, often accompanied with a strong cup of tea and something mildly interesting on television. This is the idea of being settled. My mum uses the phrase all the time. Every time she comes around to my house and I try and bother her with something, she says, I'm just 
getting settled. And what she means is I've got a cup of tea and there's something relatively entertaining on the TV and I'm not going to move for anyone because I'm mildly comfortable and I want to remain mildly comfortable for another three hours. Thank you very much. I am settled. And that is exactly the word that we find to describe the people on the plains of Judah. They were settled, living in their farms with their established families. They looked up at the city of Jerusalem, which they'd helped build, and said, we are settled. And Nehemiah went out with his clipboard, and he said, for God's city to function, we're going to need to get you people into that city. We're going to need to get the priests in there. We're going to need to get the Levites in there, so that the watching world can see the city on a hill functioning as God's people. Clarence Stock that we talked about before. And if we were to get our best, trendiest person from Christchurch and ask them to design a building that would look like, or a part of a city that would look like a cultural hub, you would come up with something like Clarence Stock, and yet it's empty, and you've got no idea of, of what Leeds really is on the back of Clarence Stock. And I'm, and I'm not just trying to do that part of the city down. There are other empty cities available St. George's Market in Northern Ireland, and I'll be going back there in a couple of weeks. It's not a spectacular building. It's not in a particularly great place. And yet when you walk in the doors, it is full of people of function. You walk around the outside of the market, and there are artists plying their trade, drawing great drawings. And you walk towards the middle of the room, and there's a band playing. You walk towards the back of the room and there's people baking in front of you when they toss the bread up and all that sort of stuff. And everywhere that you look, there are people of function. And you come away from this market and after about half an hour we were there and I remember thinking, I feel like I've got Belfast in half an hour because I've seen its people functioning. Nehemiah looks back at Jerusalem and he says, how will anybody ever know that God's here if there are no people in it? functioning. How will they ever know that God's here? And he kind of asked the question, and it's a question I really want us to think about, of the people. He says, are you willing to leave this relative comfort, this familiarity that you've got outside of the city in order to best honor God and move into the city? It's not a huge leap. It's not a killer. Are you willing to be unsettled and move into the city to glorify God? Just something to think about. And I guess a cheeky thought on the back of it. If I could transport all of you right now and send you back two and a half thousand years in time and put you on the plains of Judah, I wonder, looking around, what you would do, what your response would be to this question. And there are some interesting place names, and I don't think we are creative enough with our place names. And you might have noticed one of them as Sarah read it out, but there are more. In chapter 11, there some people settled in the Valley of the Craftsmen. What a cool place that is, the Valley of the Craftsmen. And as I look around here, I think I could probably wager, I shouldn't wager, have a, have a good idea of the, couple, the kind of people who would want to end up in the Valley of the Craftsmen. Sarah read out, about the singers who created a village. Did you notice that when she read it out? The singers built up a village. How cool a place 
would that have been? Just singers. I wonder if they turned people who couldn't sing away. And as I look around, I think, yes, I can imagine one or two of our congregation who would quite happily end up in the village of the singers. There were a bunch of people who were relieved when they didn't get selected to have to go and live in Jerusalem. They were like, oh, thank goodness that the lot didn't fall on me. Thank goodness that I got away with that. And yet there were other people who put their hands up and said, all right, I'm willing to leave this so that God will be glorified. I'll go and live in the city. So I wonder if you'd be in the town of the singers or in the valley of the craftsmen or whether you'd stick your hand up and say, all right, I'm willing to leave this relative comfort, this familiarity and go and live in the city so that the people might see God. So we're at the point of the text that Sarah read. We didn't read it all because it was a huge long list. And we get to the scene of the party. And I've tried to think all week how I can describe this scene so you can have a picture in your head. And I don't know if you remember last week we had, as I opened in prayer, we had the okey-cokey confusion, which nearly made me pass out with confusion. Well, this week we've got this picture of two choirs that get up and walk around the, rule, the, the walls of Jerusalem in celebration. And every time I, I begin to read through this passage, I just see the conga. And maybe I've got the wrong end of the stick, but every time I read it out, it's, it's two choirs of people, and it, maybe it's because I'm from the 80s, and maybe that's why I see conga. Whenever there's a slight glimpse of a conga, I'm happy to see it and indulge in it. These two choirs that make their way... And I'm looking for structure, and there is a bit of structure in the text, but it feels quite haphazard. They make their way around the city and end up at the temple. That's kind of the story. And if, if conga is the image that, that means that you're able to remember this story past half past six, then that's fine by me. But that's kind of how, how I imagine it. That's kind of what happened. Before that happened, the people, because, because this is a city now that is functioning right, The priests are there, and there is purification carried out. The walls are purified, the priests are purified, and the people are purified. This has been absent for a little while. We have three outcomes. The city is functioning as God intended it. The people are occupying it, and there are three outcomes. There are probably more outcomes when we function as God's people, but these three are the three that jump off the page to me anyway. And the first one is purity. That's the first thing that happens. The second one is worship. And the final one is witness. So if you're, if you're scrolling through your phone back at the text, have a, have a look back at what that might look like. The first one is purity. In a functioning city, the people recognize the need for purity. They worship. And as a result of their worship, they witness. It must have been a bit of a pain in the neck if, you're, if you've seen the conga line starting and you rock up with your family and you think, look, the party started. I want to be with that guy, the guy with the tambourine. You don't want to join a conga line late. You want to get there on time, don't you? You want to be in the middle. You don't want to be the guy who rocks up at the end as it finishes. And then the priest says, no, we've got something to do before that happens. Purification. Responding to God's law. Responding to God's values. I think that, I think that very often we forget just what we look like in God's sight. Really easy to do. I think that we forget what we look like in God's sight. We don't have to go through these 
purification rites that the Jews had to go through, but the principle still stands. A journey towards God is a journey towards holiness. A journey towards God is a journey towards holiness. I've heard it explained like this, and I'm not sure how you'll receive this illustration, but we'll see how we get on. Two friends. One guy has a dog, and he likes to walk through the woods. Another guy is a bit OCD and has a perfectly pristinely clean house. The guy with the dog who likes to walk through the woods goes to visit the guy with the perfectly pristinely clean house. And because they're friends, the guy with the perfectly pristinely clean, whitewashed walls, cream carpeted house lets him in. And the next day, the guy with the dog who walks through the woods turns up at the guy's house again, and he wanders in, and the dog again is covered in mud, and he's covered in mud. And because they are friends, he lets him in. And somewhere down the line in this story, you've got to start thinking that the guy who walks the dog with covered in mud would start to look at the house he's going to that's perfectly, pristinely clean and start to think, maybe if I want to remain friends with this person, I might, it might not be the best idea that I walk through the wood. It might be a good idea for me to think about my journey to this guy's house. Before I get to the pristinely clean house, I might want to think about how I'm going to get there, rather than just rocking up day after day, covered in mud and making a right mess of this guy's house. And that's the kind of picture that we get as the people return through a functioning city to God. They meet with a holy, perfect God. They begin to see a holy, perfect God. And as they see the perfectly holy God, even though they are saved, and even though, they are right, we are, we are, even though we are saved and are righteous in Christ, we still get covered in mud every single day. And I think we forget sometimes, as Christians, this picture. And maybe it's a helpful image to have in your mind that every day that we spend in the earth, somehow we, as we want to continue a relationship with God, we end up just covered in mud and we rock up at the door expecting to be let in. And yet, the way that we're living doesn't represent people who come from a really clean house. A journey towards God is a journey towards purity. The second thing that happens is that these people worship. They worship on the city walls, but I found this quite an interesting concept. Not only do they worship at the city walls, they just end up back at the temple. That's how it reads to me in the text. They just, it doesn't seem that planned. There's a bit of structure there, but the people go around the walls. There's the party. I don't know if after you party, and there was a party last night, I don't know if after you party, the, the logical place that you end up is at the temple of God with worship. As the people begin to function right, their lives are redirected. When I think about some of the places I have ended up because I have not been functioning as a city of God's kingdom, when I think about the places I've just happened to be at, the consequences for some of my actions, the mistakes that I've made, and yet when God's people in God's city start to function as his people, the place that they end up, the sort of natural, organic response to all that God has done for them is worship. It's not taught to them. It's not forced down their throats. It's just a natural response. Yeah, we see what God's done. It's amazing what God's done. Let's worship. They've not organized it. It just happened. And the third thing 
is witness. Purity, worship, and witness. What, what happens when people go to a great city and they come back, and, and it's happened to me a couple of times. A couple of people have been away from church, and I've seen them when they've come back, and they said, oh, you need to go to Prague. It's beautiful. The people are lovely. And these, they're not on commission. They're not getting paid to do this. They're not being employed by the tourist board. They just come back, and their natural reaction is, when they've seen the city and seen what goes on in the city, it's just an organic, natural response to be witnesses of that city. And we see that's what's happening. Verse 43 I don't know if you could put that up at the back. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Because of what had happened, because of what God had done, this natural response from the people impacted everywhere round about. And I like the idea you remember Sambalat and Tobiah? I like the idea that they, their ears prick up from wherever they are hundreds of miles away and think, what is that racket back in Jerusalem? God's goodness spilled out on the people and they respond in worship and the worship ends up being a witness of God's glory. My wife is, and she doesn't know this is coming, I'm so sorry. <laughs> My wife is a Glasgow girl. She's Glasgow through and through. If you cut her in half, she would bleed Glasgow. And somebody found out last night to their peril what happens when you start to slag off Scottish, tra- Scottish traditions. My wife, it was like looking into the eyes of the devil for a split second. She defends Scottishness and her city with so much passion. Quite honestly, when we leave Glasgow and we go over the M8, not all the time, but often, she will shed a little tear. She loves the place and and it's infectious in our family. And apparently, when I first got here, people thought I might be at least from the north, and I was at least a little bit Scottish. And that happens quite often. People mistake me on my accent for a Scotsman. And if you walk around our house, you'll see there's Our Willie magazines and the impact of Jude's Scottishness. And she's not been trained in Glasgowness. She's not been on a course to do it. It's just that she lived there. She was a citizen of that city, and she's infectious with it. So now, and now when I want a bag of fish and chips, I want a bag of fish and chips from Glasgow because they're amazing, and she's banged on about it for so long, it's, it's kind of gotten into me. Now, when she slags me off, I know that it's not just that she's been horrible, it's just the banter, and she brings the banter, and she misses the banter back in, in Glasgow. And she's this infectious citizen. So now when my boy says the word four, it sounds like four, it's somehow, of all, of all the numbers, one to nine is very English, and then four is just a Scottish four. I don't really know how it's happened. Her Scottishness, her pride in her city, her citizenship is infectious and has spread around. What does it mean to be a functioning citizen of God's kingdom? You live out the values and the patterns of that city and demonstrate by how you live where you come from. And it's funny, isn't it, what happens sometimes when we meet strangers? They'll say, can't place you. Trying to think, can't figure out where you're from. Something different about you. And as we go through our Christian lives, representing the values of the kingdom, without bashing people over the head all the time with a Bible, people will come to us and say, can't put my finger on it. Something different about you. Where are you from? And you can tell them, about this wonderful God 
that you've met. If we are able to live out the values of our kingdom as we work and socialize, somewhere down the line, we will have impact. Jesus said, in conclusion, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. A question to close. Are you settled? Are you comfortable? Are you willing to become a city of God's kingdom and show a dysfunctional world a function in God?